And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined as ever by my good friend and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing good, John. Just uh, getting used to this summer heat now. How are you? Yep, it's pretty pretty warm over here as well, um, but we don't get a huge amount of warmth here in the UK, so I always make the most of it whenever it does crop up. But we've got a really exciting episode for our listeners today. Do you want to tell them a little bit about it? Yeah, so we had Ralf Honigstein on to talk about the future of German football, kind of looking back at this past season, uh, whether Dortmund blew their chances for a title in, in the near future, whether or not their current model uh, is is right for sustained success. And we look at Bayern as well. They had a down season, whether or not they'll bounce back and whether Leipzig is now taking over Dortmund as Bayern's best title challenger. And yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting time for the Bundesliga, given the way that global football is moving and changing. And in many respects, there's lots of, you know, small C conservatism about German football things. One of the things that Rafa said was actually that there's an extent to which German football fans want to keep everything the same. And it feels as though football fans around the rest of the world want to move things forward. They want to always be progressing into these new and bigger and better moments all the time, usually through uh, the use of vastly superior financial backing. Uh, And so I think there's plenty for, for fans of football to get their teeth into there. So I think the best thing for us to do is to just get straight into the episode, right? Let's do it. And so here we are with Rafa Honigstein, senior writer at The Athletic. So I'm joined today by Raphael Honigstein, a senior writer at The Athletic who can also be found at Der Spiegel on BT Sport and on the excellent podcast Beer and Honey podcast with his co-host Christoph Biermann. Rafa, it's great to have you on today. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk all about the future of German football. So a nice, succinct topic for us to get our teeth into and uh, one which you've spent a lot of time thinking about, I think, over the last few decades. Um, But we can't look to the future without looking back to the past. So I wanted to begin at the end of the last Bundesliga season because it was one of the most exciting Bundesliga seasons on record. So for those of our listeners who didn't follow the Bundesliga season, let's just set the stage. So on the final day of the season, we have Dortmund sitting at the top of the table on 70 points. They are playing at home to Mainz. And if they win, then they're guaranteed to, to take the title. Bayern are just behind them on 68 points. So they need to win and hope that Dortmund are either going to lose or draw and they're playing Köln away from home so just talk us through how that match day played out it played out in horrific fashion from a black and yellow perspective because Bayern took an early lead in the eighth minute Kingsley Coman a fine solo effort and of course that I think started to suddenly put a bit more pressure on Dortmund Dortmund went into this game talking about the celebrations talking about the uh, the party and even Bayern fans and neutrals alike thought this is going to be a foregone conclusion. They will beat Mainz. They had a fantastic recent few games in Dortmund, scoring lots of goals. Mainz had a horrific uh, record going into this game. They lost their last four games. They had nothing to play for. This was all set for Dortmund. But that early Bayern goal just ramps up the pressure a little bit. And then from virtually the first attack that Mainz can muster, they score, Hanke Olsen with a header, and suddenly, Dortmund are chasing. But there's a bit of a break because they get a penalty in the 19th minute. Sebastian Allaire takes the ball off Emre Chan, who's been the designate and very successful goal scorer for Dortmund. And the penalty is saved. And then virtually the second attack from Mainz with Karim Onisivo results in a 2-0 lead. And now Dortmund are really up against it. And you can see how in that first half, the pressure and that very surprising situation of suddenly having to do something or hoping that Köln will equalize, uh, plays with our mind a little bit and simple passes go astray. The rhythm kind of gets uh, lost a little bit and they really struggle. 
they do recover in the second half to a certain extent and uh, they're being thrown a lifeline because after scoring themselves through Rafa Guerrero uh, with 10 minutes to go suddenly Kölner level uh, Lubicic scoring a penalty and at that moment of course all they need is is to hope that Köln will stick to that draw and they, they, they'll win by default uh, they do manage an equaliser late into injury time for Niklas Sule, but just a minute before, Bayern with almost the last kick of the game in regular time, score a fantastic winner for Jamal Muziala, who wins the game and, and the championship for Bayern. And I think if Dortmund play on for another five or six minutes, they might actually find a winner, because you can see Mainz in the second half, they're really just defending and they're sort of out on their backsides. But uh, it's that first half that effectively kills them for them. But to be fair to Dortmund, uh, even though this was a team sort of losing their minds and losing the nerve a little bit the final part of the season, a few days later, I think the realisation dawned on them that, yes, of course, they should have won it and they threw it away. But looking at the whole season, actually the first half, not just in this game, but the first half of the whole season, they probably weren't quite good enough to do what it took, even against one of the poorest buying teams in, in recent history. You've alluded to this, but how surprised were you that Dortmund didn't manage to beat Mainz on that day? Because was it just, were the Germans assuming that it was a foregone conclusion? Yeah, everyone did. Everyone did. I don't think anyone at Bayern thought there's going to be much chance of this happening. Uh, you might recall that a minute after the game, news broke that they had fired both the chief executive and the sporting director. And of course, that happened already a couple of days before. But the fact that it was scheduled that way shows you that they had very little hope of winning. And uh, some people were being very cynical and saying Bayern wanted to get the story out on Saturday to take away some of the, the headlines from, from Dortmund partying at that moment. Uh, as it uh, happened, it was a bit of a sort of sour note on what should have been really uh, ecstatic celebrations. Uh, Thomas Müller, a minute after winning the, the title, was told about this and he was like in disbelief saying, really, you're telling me this now? We just won the title <laughs> in dramatic circumstances. So yeah, yeah, so it was really unforeseen. Everyone thought Bayern had thrown, thrown it away by drawing against Leipzig in the previous week and Dortmund had a very dominant win themselves and the momentum clearly spoke of Dortmund seeing this out. Yeah, and it's interesting because you talked about Dortmund being handed a lifeline and that didn't just happen on the final day of the season. It happened a few times in the runner games towards the end of the season. Now, in England, we have the concept of Spursiness and I know that in Germany, they do talk about the Neverkusen phenomenon as well. Is there a similar concept tied up with Dortmund's recent failures to challenge Bayern at the top in the last couple of years? Yeah, there's a bit of an element of that. Um, of course, there weren't really ever favourites to win any of these titles in the last two years. They go into every challenge as the underdog by about 200 million euros in terms of turnover. And of course, that has a knock-on effect on transfer fees and wages. And Bayern have their top players all earning... Uh, around about 350k a week in pounds. Um, Dortmund can't go anywhere near that. Dortmund will have a few players maybe on sort of two-thirds of that. And that makes a big difference at this level. But even by their own standards, I think they would agree that they have underachieved because so many of these seasons we've seen one good half of the season, bad second half or the other way around under Lucien Favre they had a real opportunity to challenge Bayern, especially in that year when Niko Kovac was there. But they had a horrific um, first half of the season, I think it was, with only 30 points from 17 games. And that is just not championship winning material. So the accusation, I don't think, has been so much that they are a failure in relation to what they should have done with Bayern, but by their own standards, they should have been more consistent. Uh, the kind of consistency we saw in the second half of this season where they really went for it and, and put themselves in a position to really have a goal. We've seen that too few times and Dortmund's mentality 
in a wider sense has has always been questions over the last few years where people are saying they have too many young players the older players that they have are not quite at the very top end and therefore there's a kind of a, a comfort zone that they are finding hard to break out of but yeah this year it was different in the sense that they did all these things until the very end of the season where suddenly uh, for 40 minutes or so things just fell apart mm. I want to leave Dortmund for a little while and turn instead to Bayern Munich because there's a sense in which the only reason that this season unfolded the way that it did was because Bayern didn't have a great season you've mentioned there already that they they, they did fire a, a couple of their uh, in, important decision makers right at the end of the season so clearly they are judging it to be a, a poor season so how much of Dortmund's season was down to Bayern's failure I think you always needed both things to coincide. You needed Dortmund to have a really good season. And actually 71 points is probably just good, but not very good. And you needed Bayern to be very, very bad. And Bayern, by their standards, very, very, very bad. Uh, the worst they have been since uh, Louis van Gaal's second season when he got fired and there was an interim coach. And then Jupp Heynckes came in at the very end to secure Champions League qualification. That's how desperate the situation was then. Uh, they had this wobble under Niko Kovac, where they finished on 76 points, which isn't great. But in most years, Bayern were under Guardiola, basically untouchable, completely out of sight. And even under Carlo Ancelotti in his first season and under Heinkes as a caretaker, there wasn't really much Dortmund could do. Bayern had just too much consistency. But this year, the kind of trend that we saw last year when we had so few wobbles in the second half of the season under Nagelsmann became became the norm. And even the wins that Bayern did put on the board, we had within the game lots of instability, lots of strange moments where suddenly they look as if they might concede lots of goals. And of course, Bayern pulled the plug on Nagelsmann, thinking that, as has been in the past often the case, that a new manager will just push a few buttons and things will sort themselves out. But Tuchel found the uncertainty, the instability, maybe also the lack of togetherness in the team much more profound, much more pronounced, I should say, that, uh, that he had anticipated. And it took him a lot longer. And the improvement just wasn't sustained to to win the title with, with in a more convincing fashion. So yeah, absolutely, Dortmund need, always needed Bayern to drop down, if not one, but two levels, but they did. Unfortunately, they only did half the job when you look at their own performances. You've mentioned Julian Nagelsmann. Um, I'd like to talk about him in two different ways. Firstly, in terms of the on-pitch stuff and, and then secondly, in terms of the off-pitch stuff because I think both of those are quite fascinating aspects of the season as it unfolded. So from a tactical point of view, Julian Nagelsmann had won the, the, the league of the season before playing the sort of standard football you might expect a Bayern manager to, to, or coach to, to play. Um, then he comes back at the beginning of last season and he's changed, changed his approach a little bit. He's starting to look a little bit more like He's wanting to play the sort of football you'd expect from a Red Bull team. Um, having come from from Leipzig, you would have expected him to play that football there. Um, and he didn't. He played the, the more sort of elite positional approach at Leipzig and then comes to Bayern and he changes things up there in terms of playing more direct football, more counter-pressing football and thinking of new ways to, to set things up. But it feels as though he lost his nerve at some point midway through the, the season and tries to go back to, to the way that he was playing in the season before as well. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you, why do you think that he... he change things up so drastically and and how much do you think that it was the on-pitch stuff that actually did for him in the end? I, I'm not even sure we can sort of have a very fixed narrative of how he went tactically from one season to the next because even from game to game we see we saw lots of changes mm -hmm. and we saw Bayern start out, start out in his first season with that hybrid approach of four in defence but then three in possession and he did a few interesting things and and they played some wonderful football. Uh, they had this huge box presence. Um, there's a, a really interesting clip that's worthwhile checking out where he talks tactics with uh, Ralf Rangnick on the zone and people are counting the number of Bayern players that arrive in the box. And he did lots of stuff that overwhelmed opposition teams while still being quite solid defensively. In the second half of that season, he 
experimented more and made it more of a sort of orthodox wingback system. And the players did not like it. A lot of the players didn't like it. Serge Gnabry found himself playing as a wingback. Leroy Sané found himself playing as a wingback. And while you say, well, in a Bayern team full of possession, they're wingbacks anyway, in a, in a way, it, it still changed it because you didn't have necessarily the support on the wings that have made Bayern so dominant of the last 10 years. If you uh, look at um, the big change from pre-Van Gaal to after Van Gaal is that position play. And a lot of it is down to those partnerships on the flanks where the fullbacks and uh, and the wingers team up with devastating effects. Sometimes one of the wingers even going through and, and having more going to the other side and having more of an overlap. So I think Nagelsmann became a little bit too unpredictable for his own team. And the changes, the tactical changes, the personnel changes, which weren't very well communicated at Bayern, I think saw the relationship between and him, I wouldn't say road, but never really built fully. And of course, you can be a very technical manager who just says, I don't have to talk to my players much. I'm just going to, here's the team sheet. They're all professionals. Whoever's playing needs to be ready. Whoever isn't needs to be ready to come on, etc. But I think he failed to get players on board with his decision-making process, with his thinking, with his thoughts. And unlike Guardiola, who was managing in a very diff similar way, I think the team never quite believed that Nagelsmann is is brilliant enough to get away with not really talking to them. And he tried to change this in the second season, and he tried to be more communicative and more open, and he and listened to players and said, OK, I understand you prefer four at the back. And he tried to be a bit more predictable also in terms of his formation. But ultimately, I think he found it hard because the absence of Lewandowski made things more difficult, but at the same time also think made things less stable because when Lewandowski is in your team and Neuer is at the back and goal and Kimmich is in midfield, you, you know what your team looks like and then you change a few players here and there. When you want to play with more flexibility, when you want more fluidity and variety, that sometimes comes at the price of losing that cohesion, losing that togetherness, losing also that kind of... In Germany, we, we like to talk about this quite a lot, hierarchy. So a player kind of knows where he stands with the coach. Is he a regular? Is he a semi-regular? Or is he guy, the kind of guy that needs to perform really well to have a chance for the next game? And you had too many players... Um, who instead of having this this dream of having you know interchangeable players who all come come in and can all do wonderful jobs, who sort of weren't quite sure about their position, uh, both on the pitch but also in the in the wider sense of where they stood, and it left a lot of players strangely low on confidence and strangely low on on energy, and when that combined with the corrosive effects of the World Cup where all the Bayern players came back really demoralized and, and feeling very distraught about this whole experience, it became very negative and Nagelsmann was not able to stem the tide. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hmm. Yeah, and that's interesting because it sounds as though a lot of the on-pitch stuff then led to the off-pitch stuff that was 
being talked about when Julian Nagelsmann was let, let go. So do you think that's the that was the flow and direction of things? He he lost control of the dressing room as a tactician, and as a result of that, he lost it as a as a as a manager as well. I, I think so. I think there were some players who got on really well with them, and they came out afterwards and said, "This is not a case of Julian losing the dressing room. We we like working with him." Others less so. It has to be said. So it was mixed, but. I think the wider sense was that they didn't quite trust his decision-making process. So it's not that they don't can't stand him or don't like him anymore, but they, they just weren't quite sure he was giving them the best opportunity to succeed. And that's always a difficult and dangerous situation for, for a coach when, when players go into games thinking, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure this is going to work. And because a lot of these players had individually also suffered, it got to the point where too many individual problems then didn't just add up, but sort of multiplied. Mm. And, uh, and, and you had exponential growth of problems rather than uh, something that was maybe more, more manageable. The off-pitch issues with, with Julian, his lack of maturity and some, some of the things he did, some of the stuff he wore, some of the... I think this was all would have been forgivable, but the moment that a team just lose a little bit of belief, a little bit of, um, yeah, a little bit of authority, then of course these things come to the forefront. And it didn't, I think it didn't help his case that he had those other areas that could be perceived as uh, slightly inexperienced. Yeah. And you've already mentioned how at the end of the season, immediately as that game ends, we see the departure of Oliver Kahn and Hassan Salahamidzic. Um, that's the CEO and the sporting director, respectively. I, I think that whole situation is very, very fascinating because it, it almost seems as though Bayern are are placing the blame squarely in the court of the, of the higher-ups. Um, there's obviously other things going on behind the scenes as well. So could you just talk us through what was actually happening there? What's actually at stake for, for those departures? Yeah, so I think the Bayern hierarchy or the people behind Khan and Salihamidzic were quite on board with Nagelsmann getting fired because they knew about the problems and they understood that Tuchel was available and it's in within Bayern's recent history to do exactly that you know the moment a coach is underachieving and people feel that this is not going as planned then you don't wait for the real catastrophe to happen you try to anticipate it and make the change before it happens and it, and it worked in the past with Ancelotti with, with Kovac when Flick took over and won the, the trouble so they were following their their own playbook the problem is they, they kind of blew the the process because the news got out before Nagelsmann knew, which left Bayern looking very amateurish. It wasn't really their fault, I believe, but still, they couldn't keep it quiet. And it didn't look very classy. It didn't look like, like Bayern want to perceive themselves and want others to perceive them. And of course, it raised the stakes. And when Thomas Tuchel didn't manage to get immediate results, I think getting knocked out by City is probably forgivable looking at City's performances over the course of the whole season, especially what they did to Real Madrid and other teams in Europe. But getting knocked out in the Carp and then having that huge wobble, which very nearly resulted in not winning the league, showed that it didn't have that desired effect. It made Khan and Salihamidzic vulnerable in, t in, in the eyes of the public. But the real issues, the real concerns, were basically not connected to what happened this season. The big gripe is with Oliver Kahn's leadership or lack of leadership, as uh, some critics would have it. The way he led the club in a very business-like, business manner, um, business-type manner. Uh, lots of consultants from McKinsey looking at various departments, trying to figure out ways to do things better, and doing sort of all the things that go against this self-perception of buying as this big family where everyone talks to everyone and, and we all in the same thing. It became very corporate. And Uli Hoeneß, the only president who's still a powerful figure, the most powerful figure behind the scenes, just was really unhappy for probably the best part of two years. And because on the pitch things weren't going well, that then was, I think, more means to an end 
to making these decisions rather than the reason. It gave Hoeneß the opportunity through his control and influence of the supervisory board, the body that hires and fires uh, people in leadership positions of the club, to make that change. And Salihamidzic, I think, ordinarily would have survived, but the supervisory board wanted Karl-Heinz Rummenigge to come back. Uh, Hoeneß himself wanted Rummenigge to come back to a certain extent, and Rummenigge, I think a few others as well, the new CEO, they kind of said, yes, we'll do that, but then you also have to get rid of your, your guy, which is Salihamidzic. So a lot of politics, um, and the end result that Bayern are going to have to reinvent themselves, but we're partially the, the people who've been there before. So it's a strange new beginning, uh, which also looks a little bit more like a, a coup of the Ancien Regime taking power again. And Tuchel is in the middle of it, having more power than before, because there's no sporting director. And I think in the short term, he can use that power well when it comes to making decisions in the transfer market, but also leaves at the moment a vacuum between him and the board. And so how do you think that that immediate future is going to look like? Do you think that Bayern are just going to come in next season with, with all of that behind them now and they're just going to ride off into the sunset of success again? Well, it's interesting. I, I talked to some people at Dortmund and they all believe that Bayern are going to have a fantastic next season with a full time to prepare the team, a proper preseason from Thomas Tuchel, one or two changes to address weaknesses in the side, especially if they can get that big number nine that they've been desperately in need of, then I think there's every suggestion that Bayern will have a very, very strong season. Uh, but uh, we've seen, especially the German contingent, really struggle, also the national team. Maybe that lack of confidence will will seep into the next season and suddenly Tuchel is finding himself at a loss as he was for most part of of his short tenure so far, he often would come out and say, I, I struggle to explain this performance because we trained really well. And after those years, you think you get a bit of a feel for what a team will do um, based on what they do on a Thursday and Friday. And then everything is gone or the other way around. They train really badly and suddenly they perform really strongly and he couldn't really understand his team so maybe that will continue but I think there's a good chance that Bayern will have a really strong season and we'll see Tuchel take them to a level that um, will look very different to what we saw in the second half of this one. So a, a bad season for Bayern uh, but you've also mentioned that it's kind of funny because it was a bad season for Dortmund if you looked at the beginning of the, of the season in particular. Uh, after the World Cup, things do change for them, but they did struggle in the first half of the campaign. So why is it that you thought that they came out slow, out of the blocks? If you are being generous to them, or others would say fair, it's because of injuries. They had a lot of injury problems. And you lose Erling Haaland and you buy somebody who will not replace him, but at least will do a job. And then before a first ball is kicked, that guy doesn't feel well and the diagnosis comes down with testicular cancer. So I think that really not only took away a very important player off the pitch, but also really dampened the mood going into the new season. Uh, record by, hugely popular figure, and, you know, you don't know, is he ever going to come back? Is he going to survive? It's just not a great way into, into the season. And then, and I think Edin Terzic struggled to find the system without that big number nine. He tried to play Mukoko through the middle. It worked to an extent, but he's not really that comfortable, I think, in that position. He tried um, sort of to play uh, more with a false nine-ish system where he had players like Adeyemi um, or Daniel Marlin, uh, interchanging, playing that kind of uh, three-striker three, three striker system without a real recognized center forward. And it, and it didn't really work. Adeyemi didn't score a single goal before the winter break. Marlin didn't score a single league goal before the winter break. And then you have no Sebastian Haller. So the, the goals were just missing. 25 goals in, in 15 games, that is that's not a lot especially if you're leaky at the back. 
And then Halle comes back and all the injured players comes back and suddenly they have real competition. Suddenly they have a focal point. They have this real feel-good factor from Sebastian Halek coming back. I mean, I was at the winter training camp in Marbella and he's playing his first first game for Dortmund and he's going his first goal for Dortmund and he's having for his first start for Dortmund. Like every week there was another sort of something positive and something to give you this this sense of wow you know this is this is amazing and suddenly Adeyemi started scoring suddenly Marlon started scoring uh, Royce who was unhappy with his position mostly as a as a sub bought into it and became more of a leader even though he wasn't on the pitch so this real momentum happened for Dortmund and they were playing the kind of football and the kind of results mm-hmm that uh, they expected all along. And if they had only been able to do that earlier, then maybe we'd be having a different conversation. But unfortunately, they could only really do it for 17 games, sorry, for 19 games of the 34 after the winter break. Mm. Yeah, and there was really fun structural change as well. We saw them playing this 4-1-4-1 formation with Emery Chan actually playing as that pivot player who dropped in between the two centre-backs. And he made a huge difference mm. for them in that position. He yeah, had a fantastic absolutely. second half of the season. Because they brought in Saleh Ozchan at the beginning of the season. Everyone thought he would play that position. He ended up playing a little bit further forward until he gets injured. But yeah, dropping in between the two centre-backs, allowing the, the full-backs to be able to get forward and help out. And then Julian Brandt moving around everywhere and, and sort of tying everything together. So very much the case that 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 system really brought out the best in in their team yeah they i mean chan really changed uh, changed the way dortmund played he gave him that stability he played a very simple if you can call it a simple number six role he was just really just trying to win the ball and pass it there was no attempt to play vertical balls or trying to do something clever which isn't really his game but he played that game really well and then whoever played in the two eights positions um, Brandt and Bellingham or Oshan and Bellingham or Brandt and um, Rafa Guerrero when, when Bellingham was injured it, it just it made the team a lot more dynamic and fluid and they looked great on the break especially uh, with those fast players either side of Alea Alea could, could hold up the ball I mean we're not talking about you know specifically uh, some genius tactical inventions, but just the basics, just having that outlet, having a guy that will hold up the game, give the wingers time to come up, give the fullbacks time to come up. Simple things kind of suddenly worked and clicked for the Stortman team. And, uh, and the togetherness was there. And I think a lot of it is due to the way that Isentezic handled the team. He's a great man manager. The team, I think, suddenly believed that they could do something, that Bayern were vulnerable. The crowd were really on board in a way that we haven't seen in recent years. Uh, they've been a little bit impatient, a little bit unhappy with what they've seen, but they really bought into it. Terzic managed to get them totally on side. And yeah, it was the kind of Dortmund team that you want to see. And the kind of Dortmund team, to be fair, that we saw even without Alea in the Champions League, where they had mostly three centre midfielders and Chan often playing, and they looked better for it. It's in the league where they more went for the 4-2-3-1 because they wanted, I think one of the reasons that is they wanted to get Royce into the side because he can't really play in a, in a front three. He's not mobile enough anymore, um, which was bad news for him, but good news for the team because they looked a lot happier. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about Edin Terzic and because we just talked about the you know this tactical switch that actually brings the best out of the team. But as you've said, he's he's probably better known as being a man man motivator. He's, he's one of these coaches who's going to bring get the team all on board and, uh, and and motivated to win these games. So, um, do you think that that's a fair assessment of him that he is he is better at the the motivational side of things than the tactical side of things? I think we don't really know yet. He's only coached for one and a half seasons. Half of them as an interim where he won the cup and this was his first full season as and head coach. And he was a, a technical di- director as well when Marco Rosa was a, in charge of the club as well. So he sort of moved backwards and forwards between being an assistant, interiming and then and then working behind the scenes. Right? Yeah, I think he was, as a technical director, I think the idea was that Dortmund did not want to lose him. He had lots of offers after winning uh, the cup and Dortmund thought, okay, we, we're getting Rosa in. He might not be ready yet. But what can we do to keep him? Also, of course, as a backup, because if Rosa 
didn't work out and he didn't really work out or not as much as Dortmund wanted him to, then you had your ready-made successor there and somebody who really, as a former Dortmund fan himself, understands the demands of the club, the needs of the fans. And he, I think he could yet be the transformative manager that Dortmund will need because there's only two ways that can... That, there's only two ways that Dortmund can win the title in, in, in Germany, realistically. One is uh, Bayern have a really awful season, which happened. But they probably need to not just be consistent and be good, but maybe be a little bit better than they have a right to be, as they were under Jurgen Klopp. And I think Terzic, because he can play all these soft factors so well, the crowd, the relationships, the players, I think he might just lift them and get them over the line. But you need Bayern again to be pretty poor and I don't think that will happen next season. But there isn't, there is, um, I think there is a, a, a real sense of optimism in Dortmund mm -hmm. that with Terzic there, they can be a lot more competitive and that Bayern's problems will not go away even if they have a great season next year because there's these structural issues that are still not resolved at the club. So you think we'll see Terzic at Dortmund for a while now? I think so. I think Dortmund are very happy with him. I think he has found his dream job. I don't think he's got any aspirations at the moment to be anywhere else. He wants, I think, that title more than anything else, especially after this horrible experience the last day of the season where he's one of those guys because he feels what it's like to be a fan and he knows how much it hurts people, I think he'll want to to right that wrong. And I don't think he'll he'll want to give up before Dortmund will win the championship. And I don't think it's going to happen next season, but he will try to push Dortmund further along to the point where they can see themselves as more natural challengers, as they did for about three or four years when Klopp was there. Mm. So I want to start moving to think about the future of German football now, but you've had a little bit of time to decompress from the end of the Bundesliga season. Looking back with a little bit of hindsight bias and a little bit of distance from the season, how do you assess the impact of, of the way that the season ended on German football? I, think I saw a lot of people talking about Dortmund losing as a, as a disaster for German football. Um, would you agree with that? It's not a disaster. It's... It's really the, just the outcome that everyone expected. Uh, it just happened in an unexpected way on the last day of the season. It would have been better, of course, for Dor German football if Dortmund had broken that dominance uh, for their own sake, maybe even for Bayern's sake. If they don't get rewarded for what is a, a bad season, uh, it might have forced them to even make more changes to look a little bit closer at their own failings. And of course, it would have looked better internationally if you have that semblance of a of a real challenge uh, underlined by by title win but i think the positives actually still outweigh the negatives because it was a fantastic season uh, you've had so much drama uh, both at the top but also at the bottom where right until the end huge clubs didn't know whether they're staying up or down even the you know relegation which was a bit one-sided but to have stuttgart and hamburg involved you know clubs of such size magnitude history was was very exciting and then you still have the surprise factor in in Freiburg uh, doing really well and Union Berlin qualifying for the Champions League yeah, I mean, it's just, fighting for the Champions League who would have thought it so yeah it's just crazy. an unbelievable in a strange way an unbelievable validation of the Bundesliga system because uh, yes if you allow somebody to buy Dortmund and put half a billion euros in then yes they can probably challenge Bayern but it would come at the price of making it much harder for teams that are run organically and that just have to make do with the income that they generate themselves and making smart decisions like Freiburg, like Union Berlin to succeed. So there's a price to pay for more competitiveness. And at the moment, my strong hunch is that to the vast majority of German supporters, they don't feel that is a nice that this is a price worth paying. They don't really think in terms of what will attract 
Chinese, Indian, American audiences. What shall we do to be sexier? What shall we do to attract more players? It's it's not really a concern for the vast majority of of fans in Germany. I think it's hard to understand that sometimes from a UK perspective, where people always, well, lots of them dream of having the wealthiest owner and having the best players, and they understand perhaps more instinctively the relationship between money and success. Whereas in Germany, money is still seen as something a little bit dirty, and and those who have it uh, are not celebrated for it necessarily. So I don't think that we've reached a point where people feel we have to change the structure to change the sporting outcome. Because, again, um, I think it's important to understand, I think the, the sporting outcome, I don't want to say it's secondary, but it's not necessarily the most important reason why people go to a game in most places they go to the game because it is their club and that's what they do every other Saturday and they don't want to have that watered down by being owned by investors and losing that relationship that they have with their clubs it's really hard to understand I think from a from a UK perspective and I see it in the comments um, under the articles that always people say you know yeah the Bundesliga set up for Bayern and this is just a everyone's so deferential to Bayern and Why is there no challenge? Why are people doing this? But it's not really the main concern for most people. It's just a different kind of expectations of what football should be like. Yeah, and I find it entirely refreshing, especially the way things are going in, in the English game as well. But um, that's another another question for a little bit later, I think, because I did want to talk um, a little bit about whether or not... You, you've said there's a lot of positivity at Dortmund at the moment, but um, you also mentioned the last time when Dortmund had a, a chance to challenge was back in 2018-19 when Niko Kovac was, uh, was at Bayern. Is there any chance that you think that actually this is the this was the big chance for Dortmund to actually win the title, and now it's going to go back to Bayern sorting themselves out for a, for a long time, and 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 they're going to fall away again? Well, undoubtedly, this was the big chance. I mean, if you can't beat a Bayern team that's finishing on seventy one points, it's going to be hard to find a Bayern team that will perform so badly. But I think Dortmund can still do better, and. I'm not convinced that the Tuchel-Bayern relationship is necessarily built for half a decade of dominance. I think it can easily go sour or they can easily win so much that Tuchel feels, you know, fine, and that's it, what's next? So I don't think that Dortmund will be out of this. I think if they can get their own house in order, and I think with Terzic they have a good chance of, of doing that, And, of course, they have the added problem of always having to replace one or two really special players every couple of years. This time it's Jude Bellingham. Last year it was Erling Haaland. The year before it was Jadon Sancho. Huge players for Dortmund, all of them. But if they manage to, to do that and stabilize at a point where they get into the 80s points-wise, then I think there is absolutely no reason why over the next let's say five years, we don't see Dortmund winning at least once. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. It's interesting because it seems as though there's almost a tension between the attitude that it feels like Dortmund should have, which is prepare a long-term strategy for yourself, as you said, to be in those 80-point, into that in that 80-point conversation so that if Bayern do stumble, then you're there to, to to make the most of it. But then also this sort of short-termist strategy that you've mentioned in terms of the players that they bring in, um, very much a, a, a player talent development club. And so you see those those players like Jude Bellingham, like Erling Haaland, like Jadon Sancho coming in, helping the team out for a season and then moving on. So do you think there's a tension there between the the, the approach that, that Dortmund have to take in order to be competitive and it working against them in the in the long run for that long termism that they need to have in order to actually challenge Bayern in those moments when they when they Absolutely. Uh, they are forever faced with a dilemma because they can only attract Erling Haaland and Jude Bellingham and Jaden Sancho knowing that these guys are going to go after a couple of years. They cannot buy these players at a point where they know they're going to stick around. And in a way, the promise is I come to Dortmund because I know I'm going to play really well and in two, maximum three years time, I'm going to move on because this is not my last destination. They can't really change that dynamic unless they suddenly start paying lots more money to players to stick around, which they don't have. What they have done and what they're quite proud of is to come to the point where it's not every single year that they lose one. It might just be every other year you might get two or three years of these players rather than just one or two. That extra year might just be enough to get a little bit further in the Champions League, to push Bayern a little bit more. And quite crucially, they don't have to sell to Bayern anymore. Um, Mats Hummels is the last player that they sold to Bayern. Yes, Rafael Guerrero ran down his contract, but I think without Thomas Tuchel being there, this is not a player that Bayern would have looked at. Um, And he's definitely not being lured away to weaken Dortmund. Dortmund, I don't think, really wanted to renew the contract anyway. Um, but those top players, they will not go to Bayern. They will go somewhere else because they don't necessarily see the jump up from Dortmund to Bayern as being particularly exciting or worthwhile because Dortmund can, can offer a lot. And then if it comes to the next step, then we're really talking about Real Madrid or Manchester City or Man United in in the case of Jadon Sancho. So they have become financially stronger and they have cemented that position as the number two in terms of income. But there is still that gap that makes it very hard to to do anything else. If if you and I were in charge of Dortmund, I don't think there is any other way of doing it. Um, They can only get Haaland, Sancho and Bellingham at the very start of their careers. Uh, after that, they're, they're out of the price range. And then when it comes to more the experienced pros, they cannot go for the blue chip players. They cannot buy Leroy Sané for 60, 70 million from City as Bayern do, or Lucas Hernandez for 80. Um, they have to go f- sort of for the the B, B-listers, the Bruns, the Chans, Guerrero himself. And that's very hard to to change within the financial constraints that they're that they're dealing with. Mm. Yeah, and uh, one team who have changed the the concept of financial restraints is RB Leipzig, um, who had a very good second half of the season under Marco Rosa, who was obviously previously at Dortmund. Is there any chance that they are now the team who are better set up to challenge Bayern at the top of the table? Do you think that that will happen next season, and will that usher in a new era of Leipzig being a de facto? challenges to the title I think if they'd been able to keep Christopher Nkunku I might say yes but because they sold him because they might still lose one of their fantastic defenders Guardiola Sumacan and of course they lost Lima as well I should mention him hugely important player I think it's hard for Leipzig they 
they've carved out a niche for themselves as I think as the third best team and they can attract players on that basis knowing that okay you might not quite be Dortmund you might not quite be Bayern but if you're just below that as a German for example we give you the best place to kind of guarantee Champions League football to know that you're going to have good players to know that you're going to be watched by all the good clubs in the world because just by being at Leipzig people assume that you're a good player because our scouting is really good can they go further I think they can only do it if they are prepared to ride roughshod over financial fair play regulations and really go for it we haven't really seen much sign of it it's going to be interesting because Oliver Minslav who used to run Leipzig and now has moved up to be chief executive in the Red Bull Corporation he's in charge of all the sporting engagements and of course in principle he could say you know what formula one nah it's okay but let's put a billion euros into leipzig and really go for it but he's not he's not somebody who comes from football he used to be a track and field athlete i'm not sure he even loves the game very much and of course then you would still have the problems of of dressing it up in a way that would be palatable to uefa so i think it's hard it's hard to do under the existing regulations. They, they, they're gaming the system, obviously, by having players at Salzburg, by having players at Liefering. Maybe one day they'll have players that are interesting in, in uh, Brazil, where they have a feeder club, and in New York it hasn't really happened, uh, with one or two exceptions. But, yeah, they'd really have to push financial fair play to its very limit to, to challenge Bayern. I just don't see it happening at the moment. And they're obviously a controversial club in Germany because of the way that they have approached the 50 plus one regulations. And for those listeners who don't know what that is, that's the idea that 50% plus one share of the voting shares have to be owned by the fans in, in German football, right? Um, and they found interesting ways of getting around that, which allows them to to um, uh, actually put a little bit more money in, into the, the running of their club. Um, We've already talked a little bit about competitiveness in the Bundesliga and you've suggested that, you know, in terms of in terms of the, the the global European idea of competitiveness within football, which always gets trotted out whenever the Bundesliga is being talked about, you're saying that's actually maybe not as important to German football fans, but presumably the German football fans would like to see Bayern being challenged. If you think that RB Leipzig are then the next team who managed to do that, do you think that would change people's attitude to RB Leipzig or is, it, is that just done now? Is that is a conversation that will never... I, I, I doubt it. I mean, I think that... Um they have become normalized simply by, by virtue of being there. You know, there's only so much hate you can muster and so much animosity to a team that just happens to be there and it's going to be there for another 20, 30 years. Um, eventually, just kind of put up with it. And I think that's like a normal case, normal course of, of events. But I think with the exception of maybe a few neutrals who don't care, if Leipzig were to win the title... I don't think very few people, I don't think many people would say, hooray, finally we have a challenge to Bayern. I think the reaction would be actually more resistance, uh, more positions saying, okay, now they've actually succeeded in buying and uh, not just a place for themselves at the top table, but actually buying, buying the biggest trophy. Uh, yes, well done, you used your money well and you're a very smart run club and we've seen examples from outside Germany where people have much more money and are not nearly as professional, but they would still see it, see, see it as an artificial construct and something that doesn't deserve much adulation. Uh, and again, it goes back to the idea that, yes, competitive would, competitiveness would be nice and more fluidity at the top would be nice, but it's not really at the forefront of too many people's concerns. If you ask the, you know, you grab a guy from the Cologne, um ultra section and say you know what is it you want I think Bundesliga so being competitive would be probably his 15th priority of what he cares about and it, it's the same when it comes to the Bundesliga's whole competitiveness vis-a-vis -vis other leagues of course it has a knock-on effect if you can't buy the best players but I think for many fans it's a much more I think heuristic is the is the word um, perspective. They they care about their own mm -hmm. bubble, mm -hmm. 
and they don't really care how Köln or Bremen or these other clubs stand in relation to Dortmund or even Real Madrid and, and Man City. Yeah, and as a Freiburg fan, I don't care what Bayern do. I I've had a fantastic season supporting a team that have overperformed, and you know the the league is great precisely because of what you say that you know competitiveness isn't important to the detriment of of maybe some more important aspects of of what we enjoy about football as well. But and and what we should say is of course that below Bayern in those last ten years, it's been incredibly competitive mm-hmm. because it does allow teams like Freiburg, like Union Berlin. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, Wolfsburg were in the Champions League recently. Frankfurt is a fantastic story of a team that's just through its own power and smart decisions and that incredible fan energy that they generate has propelled themselves into the Champions League. And all these teams would would find it much harder if there were more Leipzigs or bigger Leipzigs mm. steamrolling the opposition. And I think that's something that's sometimes forgetten, forgotten because uh, whenever you generate a new super club by supercharging them with money yes it makes things more interesting but it comes to the detriment of the normal clubs who otherwise would be there mm-hmm. and you only have to look at England where you'd probably say you know teams like uh, West Ham Arsenal Aston Villa you know they would have been title challengers without Abramovich without Abu Dhabi money and Man City and that's kind of the the cost that the hidden cost to the system that I think sometimes is overlooked. Mm. Just one more question about the the financial reality and just expanding that to the European context, uh, because there is a sense in which I suppose that if you are going to take those decisions vis-a-vis German finance, German football finance, then you are going to find yourself running a little bit behind the, the the top teams in Europe and that will come at the cost of, of maybe challenging um, as much as you might like in the European competitions. Um, how do you think that plays out in the in the German football fan mindset? Do they do they worry about that? Is that the sort of, or were they happy to be able to say, well, we've won these battles in our domestic game, so we're we're happy to let those 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 bigger European competitions, uh, uh, you know, run the risk of not being as competitive to us. Mm. It's hard to say because I think we found a sort of uh, the status quo is is maybe a happy equilibrium because German clubs are I think just competitive enough in the European context and Champions League is really just Bayern but if you go down a notch if you look at the teams that qualify from the group stage or if the teams that uh, do something in the Europa League with with Frankfurt winning and Leverkusen going to the semi final it's probably just enough. Um, sort of uh, deflected pride that comes from German teams doing doing well and not being an embarrassment for people to say we don't have to change anything if you know they were to perform to the point where there's only one Champions League um, team that gets into the group stage because their coefficient is so poor or if they've absolutely got no chance of ever winning any European competition maybe people will say, okay, we have to do something. But I think for most neutrals and even the fans of the clubs involved, uh, German football is, is just competitive enough internationally to say that we don't feel that it's necessary to change what we have to maybe chase a dream of more competitiveness or things that we're not really that bothered about. Mm. So... Um, yeah, it seems to be that I think Germans are, for all the flaws, for all the drawbacks, kind of content with their lot. And and you'll see actually a lot of the, the fan-based activism journey is a very conservative one. It's not necessarily, um, in, in a political way, yes, there is concern with progressive ideas about inclusivity, diversity, and so on. But when it comes to the wider financial setup, the structure, it's actually a very defensive movement. People are saying we want things to stay the way they are. And that's quite unusual. Because usually people go to the street to change things and to hang out banners to change things. In Germany, there's a lot of stuff. People are saying we don't want modern football. Um, we don't want um, things to change and become the way they are in the Premier League or elsewhere. And that shows you ultimately that people, for all the gripes about the problems, actually are happy with with the existing system 
Uh, that's why they resist change so much. Yeah, and maybe this is the positive note for us to, to end on because I think there's a sense in which that is a very countercultural approach to football and every other league seems to be going the other way, right? How do we progress? How do we increase the financial status of our league or our club or et cetera, et cetera? Do you think that in the long run that could work out quite well for German football when their realisation does come that, you know, there are aspects of modern football that are sordid, that, uh, that, that the enjoyment of the, of the game doesn't necessarily have to come with, with all of these um, financial strings attached as well. Do you think that there will be a, a sense in which maybe people start coming back to German football to remember what it was that they once loved about the game? I think on a fan level, yes. But there's this inbuilt tension and conflict, of course, because the fans want one thing and the people running the club want another. And I don't think that is a conflict that can be resolved because... You know, especially you and me living in the UK, thinking, okay, of course it makes sense to have a game on a Monday because, you know, no one's doing anything on a Monday. People are at home and it's lovely to have a football game on a Monday and people tune in and we can sell that game for a bit of extra money. Um, let's not have everything on Saturday and Sunday. But German football fans have really been very vocal and very confrontational in saying we don't want Monday games. And uh, the German League have decided to, to cave in and then on Monday games. And that's just one example where the pressure to to monetize the game, to create money that cannot come from investors, because there are no investors, or most of the time there are no investors. So you have to grow revenue streams. You have to be actually, um, l let me put it differently. The upshot of this organic system is is quite ironic because it basically commercializes the league even more they are forced to sell naming rights to stadium they're forced to sell every little screen that comes up the corner statistics is presented to you by audi because there is no anyone who says oh you're losing 100 million that's not a problem here's the check at the end of the season you even again there's no investor there's no owner so the clubs have to be actually quite commercial and that leads then to the game on the surface becoming more commoditized and more commercial than it is in the Premier League, where it's actually quite clean, the stadium experience, if you think about it. Stadiums, a lot of them have still their old names. Um, there aren't that many VIP seats in lots of stadiums. There aren't that many um, sort of external advertising things you see. It's still quite a sort of purist experience, whereas in Germany, the purist experience is a more structural sense, but it leads to a quite a commercialized stadium experience which the fans resist and because the fans resist but the clubs feel quite rightly I think on the basis of the financials that they have to go down that route I don't think we'll ever see the point where people say actually what we have is really great and let's just kind of manage it and stick with it because that tension is forever being renegotiated every single issue and uh, we saw recently how the, the Bundesliga said um, we need to generate more money we need to um try to improve our digital output. We need, need to really do something for international rights, which are ridiculous in relation to, to everyone else. And what can we do? We need to have a better TV product. We need money to invest, uh, also invest in stadiums. Where's that money coming from? Of course, you can go to the banks and just borrow the money, but then you have huge debt. And if somebody goes bust, then it creates a moral hazard because then the rest of the league have to pick up uh, the pieces for that club uh, is not good. So why not instead mortgage the TV rights, get some money up front, and then we'll pay it back over the course of the next uh, 15 years or so. But even that was seen as hugely problematic and unpalatable for many fans. And because the clubs have to be very attuned to what the fans say, it was, it was voted down. And now that... Uh, don't know what it was, one, one and a half billion euros or whatever will have to be generated differently. So, yeah, I think it's a bit of a German problem that they often don't see how actually things are in the grand scheme of things pretty well run in many areas and not just in football. And there's a lot of always moaning and, and people saying this is rubbish or should be better. But I think in football itself, it's a case where the interests are so divergent that we'll never see 
um, people being always on the same page. Well, I intended to end with a, with a positive there, but that sounds well, it's just, you, you positive it's just about a, the future It's just the nature football? of... I am positive because you saw... Just go back to this league that we had, I think, had so much drama, so many interesting stories, um, so many clubs really happy with what happened. And even the ones who went down, which I think was really one of the positives, we didn't have those ugly scenes in recent years where suddenly the ultras turned on a team and there were horrible scenes of people being chased or people saying you have to take off the shirt, you don't deserve the shirt. Actually, there was real togetherness until the end because fans decided that we're going to support this team no matter what. And even a place like Schalke, which is so highly fraught, um, and we've seen very ugly scenes in the past, they've gone down, but the fans have said, okay, we'll, we'll try to get up as quickly as possible and we're just going to support the team. So I think, again, there are lots of things that, that went, there are lots of things that went really well for the Bundesliga, but of course, it's all also seen through the prism of the horrible performances of the national team in the World Cup and beyond. And that's going to continue, I think, to put a slight dampen on things because people, even though they rarely admit it, I think want the German national team to play really well because it helps it helps everyone creating a, a feel-good factor and uh, and keeping football what it is, which is what it should be, which is fun. Well, Rafa, I could talk to you about German football all day, but we do have to draw it to a close. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.